0: Um, Okay. Thank you for all coming back. Um, I'm going to, as Stuart said, talking about um, women's poetry. I've prefaced it from a a poem by a poet I'm going to be speaking about a little later. This is your war, and hopefully that will make sense. Can everyone hear me? Do I need to, like, do my American really loud voice? Okay? Okay, please? Okay, I'll do that. Right. Um, I want to start with, potentially, there should be two handouts. One with um, poems that were up at the top, and also I've left you with a select bibliography of um, anthologies and also critical works for you to have a look at to pursue some of these ideas later on. And they're ones that I've quoted from in the talk, and and hopefully you can go on it and do some more reading around this area. But as I said, I want to start with potentially a controversial poet, Although, as you'll see from what I'm about to say, I have a slight soft spot for it, despite all of the problems that we might associate with Jesse Pope. Um, So a word about Jesse. Uh, Jesse Pope is perhaps best known, and indeed vilified, for her patriotic poetry of the First World War that was published in newspapers such as the Daily Mail from 1914 onwards, and which was later collected in the volumes Jesse Pope's War Poems of 1915, Um, simple rhymes for stirring times 1916 as well as in charity books gift books such as the fiery cross of 1915 widely disseminated and widely read her war verse attracted both admiration and condemnation the opening pages of Jesse Pope's war poem reproduces a facsimile of a letter sent from a soldier at the front that proclaims her poems much admired by us all out here and will be such a buck-up for the soldier's wife. Bucking up means so much to those at home as well as for us. Really, they need it most, as after all, it is the most worrying suspense. Poems such as No, with the insistent line, are we downhearted, with its resounding affirmation of the steadfastness of everyone from Tommy to General French, Jack the Sailor, and even the girl who is left behind and the wife who misses her mate may have indeed bucked up those on the home front, but such widespread dissemination of poems like Play the Game, in which war is the ultimate sport, and Englishmen are urged to get to work with a gun, underlined, sealed her fate as a jingoistic pro-war propagandist. The glorification of combat in sing-song doggerel rhyme eschewed the horrors of the battlefield and seemingly showed little regard for the suffering of soldiers. The call with its lines, who's for the trench? Are you, my laddie? Who'll follow the French? Will you, my laddie? Who's fretting to begin? Who's going out to win? And who wants to stave his skin? Do you, my laddie? Was only one among many that compelled Wilfred Owen to dedicate Dulce et Decorum Est in his original manuscript, um, to Jesse Pope, etc. Then, in a subsequent version, to a certain poetess Poetess, before deleting the dedication altogether in favor of the more cryptic reference to my friend, in the final lines that precede the old lie. Pope had no pretensions to literary greatness. In an interview in nineteen fifteen, she made light of her talent for topical poetry, saying If you take a pen and sit there and stare at a blank piece of paper long enough, something in the shape of a poem will come on it sooner or later. (laughs) Although she did list solitude and silence, a sense of rhythm, a fairly fluid vocabulary, and a patient determination not to be beaten by false starts as other necessary attributes for the would-be versifier, and that was in the lady's realm. Her hobbies, chiefly of the outdoor variety, the article says, included hunting, cycling, driving motor cars, playing golf, swimming, and fearlessly diving off seaside peer peer heads. While many continue to condemn Pope's First World War War writing, um, she is represented as the worst example of the cold female non-combatant civilian. Some critics have argued for a more subtle consideration of her writing. In the poem No, for instance, um, Jane Dowson argues that among the compliant cliches and facile rhythms, it is possible to hear a subtle denial of chivalric platitudes. Her wartime (coughs) pen was directed not only at so-called slackers, but also at war profiteers. Readers were urged not to forget the sick children at Great Ormond Street Hospital or the wounded wounded blind at (coughs) St. Dunstan's when considering outputs for their wartime charity. She demonstrated the ways in which women could be active and show their grit in such poems as Socks and War Girls and conjoled women on the home front to economize. And in fact, I don't know, I haven't put it on my handouts, but those of you that have The Winter of the World, which is on the reading list, um, there is a poem in here called The Beau Ideal, Um, with the lines, the final stanza of which reads, the lad who troth with rose would plight, nor apprehend rejection, must be in shabby khaki dight to compass her affection. Who buys her an engagement ring and finds her kind in kissing, must have one member in a sling, or preferably missing. (laughs) And I think we can detect not a celebration of that, but a sending up if you read the rest of the poem of women whose attitudes are I must, be, you know, I must have a man wounded in a mentionable place um, and uh, in a very interesting article from the early 70s W.G. Bevington which is one of the only kind of really serious considerations I can find of Pope's work aside from the Dowson um, said that indeed Owen may have cancelled his original dedication to, to Pope because he recognized the tongue in cheek So Pope's verse is not great literature. She was above all a writer of humor. That this humor rang hollow in light of the carnage of the Western Front was a fate not unique to this certain poetess, and it is perhaps the reason why she returned in her later years to the gentler subjects of animals and fairies in her verse and stories for children. Many criticisms have been lobbed at the quality of women's poetry, which has been deemed uneven at best, doggerel at worst. Often caught up in arguments about aesthetics that no woman produced an oeuvre of the quality of Wilfred Owen or other canonical male poets, women's poetry is either dismissed as mere whinging or critiqued in such a way as to highlight its technical failings, however inadvertently. Yet war poetry should reflect the experiences and emotions of the whole of the population affected by war. And as we heard from Mark and Elisa earlier, what is a war poem? What is war poetry? Who is able to write it? Um, If by the canon what is meant the best of, then certainly some women's poetry, like that of men's, is more worthy of inclusion than others. That is, the best poetry is distinguished not only by the intensity of feeling, but also by technical quality, the skill at the craft of poetry, the lyricism, the rhythm, etc., that distinguishes verse from prose. As in all things, um, the very best of is marked by fewer rather than by more examples. However, if one is presenting a survey of First World War poetry, regardless of an adherence to the canon, then the parameters of inclusion for many types of poems for both men and women are widened. As Arga Banerjee points out in his book, though, merely adding or including a poem in an anthology without commensurate critical justification and research may sound even more patronizing and irresponsible than including none at all. Catherine Riley's bibliography, which has already been mentioned today, notes that 532 women poets writing about the war during and after are now largely forgotten. Some were established before the war, Alice Menel, Charlotte Mew, May Sinclair. Some were on the verge of a career, Mary Webb, Enid Bagnold, Edith Sitwell. Others became famous after the war, Vera Britton, Rose Macaulay, Eleanor Farjohn. As Claire Buck argues, even while war poetry is arguably the most central of women's wartime genres, readers have often found it disappointingly backward-looking in both style and subject matter, many poems reiterating a version of femininity rooted in home-front experiences of waiting and mourning. Most were espousing formal metre, stanzaic forms, familiar genres, as opposed to the experimental rhythms of free verse, and other modernist techniques that eschewed Victorian poetics. And as she says, because modernism has so fundamentally altered our understanding of Victorian and Edwardian poetry, aesthetic value may not be a useful framework for understanding women's war poetry. And again, Jill Plain, sorry for the long quote, but I think it's very interesting. Why do we expect the articulation of a radically new and uniformly consistent poetic voice from what was a large and diverse group of women? The expectations of modernism ironically have created a literary mainstream out of a selection of experimental and largely male writing. And this is talking about her article that she goes on to discuss. I hope to show that the failure of these women to conform to our textual great expectations is irrelevant the single most characteristic feature of these women's experience of war was isolation. Their position had neither the homogeneity of the trenches nor the intense intellectualism of experimental circles. Predominantly middle class, alienated by absence and bereavement, they attempted to articulate the unprecedented nature of their experience. That their experiments were not wholly successful is perhaps indicative of the near impossibility of the task they overtook. Moreover, Plain argues that women poets of the war can be particularly troublesome. And as she says, lacking the superficial homogeneity of the trenches, or even a cohesion vision of life on the home front, these disparate writers stubbornly resist comfortable categorization as chroniclers, defenders, or even supporters of the conflict. And in light of the focus on Owen and Sassoon, attitudes such as May Cannon seem out of step. I had admired such a, much of Sassoon's verse, but I was not coming home with him. Someone must go on writing for those who were, not convinc- who were not convinced of the right of the cause, those who were convinced, excuse me, of the right of the cause for which they had taken up arms. I did not believe the dead had died for nothing, nor that we should have kept out of the war, The dead had kept faith, and if we did not grudge it, had we. Then, of course, there's the question of entitlement between soldiers and civilians. As Tim Kendall notes, women's war poetry, um, twice removed from the work of the male combatant, therefore became doubly vulnerable to disparagement and neglect. And he's talking here in terms of in the aftermath of war, veterans laying claim to the experience as opposed to um, um, civilians who hadn't been um, active. Um, So women's war poetry, twice, twice removed from the work of the male combatant, therefore became doubly vulnerable to disparagement and neglect. Women had been represented in wartime anthologies, but their subsequent exclusion from the canon by a series of male editors and commentators took no account of the fact that several of the more prominent among them had served in France or in Belgium in different capacities. Vivian Noakes talks about how also others, the wives and the mothers of small children or of men at the front, waited and all too often mourned. Their writings are vivid testimony to the tragedy of anxiety and loss. So when Noakes talks about in her introduction to um, Voices of Silence, the alternative book of First World Poetry, another one I highly recommend. Um, When she was compiling this, she discovered a rich body um, of of deeply moving work that complements the established literary canon. This body of work, she says, does does, does not pretend to aspire in quality um, to the poetry of the Great War um, to dead men's dump or strange meeting or as the teams had brass but what I discovered as I said was a rich body of exciting and deeply deeply moving material and that the two should be read side by side so I agree with her um, while I won't be doing a side-by-side comparison in such, um, as such in this paper what I want to do for the rest of it is focus in particular on some poems that seem to me to represent though by no means all of the very poetic responses by women to this devastating war. Um, the first on your handout, um, which says Song of the Mud, it's Mary Borden. Um, evocative and grounded images of the war were not just created by combatants. Mary Borden served in French military hospitals. She was a very wealthy American who'd come to serve with the French. Um, and she served close to the front line. Her um, book, The Forbidden Zone, is both memoir and poetry. She calls it a collection of fragments because the strip of land immediately behind the zone of fire where I was stationed went by that name in the French army. We were moved up and down inside it. Our hospital unit was shifted from France, from Flanders to the Somme, then to Champagne, and back to Belgium, but we never left La Zone Interdite. Wilfred Owen is not the only poet to communicate the sickening sludge of the battlefield, and as you'll see from the lines um, here, um, so on page 79, if you skip down to line 33, this is the song of the mud. She's unsparing in her graphic rendering of the scene, the filthy, the putrid the vast liquid grave of our armies that has drowned our men. Its undigested belly reeks with the undigested dead." Not only is this a traumatized vortex text par excellence, as saint das argues, but it is also a subversion of the pastoral, according to Arger Banerjee, who says that it provides powerful images of the reality of war, with the horrifying scenes of soldiers being sucked into the mud of Flanders. But he also notes the irony that this pretentious vortex of mud that consumes soldiers' lives is also the beautiful, glistening, golden mud that covers the hills like satin. Um, And you will find that on the next page, on page 80 um, from line... um, This is the beginning, this is the Song of the Mud, the beautiful glistening golden mud that covers the hills like satin. And it's reminiscent of a pristine Arcadia that has been transformed into the barren landscape due to the war. Now, no um, less gruesome, but no less evocative visions of the war are conveyed by the women I want to turn to now. The first being Rose Macaulay, of course, daughter of the classical scholar uh, G.C. Macaulay. She was born in Cambridge where her father was a university lecturer. We might want to reflect on the biographies of these women, um, their relationship to famous fathers, to fathers who were scholars. They had access to their father's libraries. It's a very interesting thing to be thinking about. Um, in her poem, Picnic, of July, ni- it's July 1917, this is um, the page labeled um, 66, uh, the dominant theme here is the necessity of controlling the emotions. I won't, in the interest of time, read out the poem, but to point out some of the lines, and then hopefully you can read it um, more deeply later. Um, so it's about controlling the, mo- the emotions. The month of July is significant, not only because it is high summer, the season for picnics, but also because this July contrasts with the July of 1914, just before the war started. When the popular myth had it, people were reveling in a perfect summer. Although the war does not enter Macaulay's poem until the last line of stanza three, there are ominous suggestions of it with the repetition of the word hurt, hurt berries, hurt wood, amidst the pastoral imagery and lulling rhythm. They lay drowsy and quiet and sweet in the pastoral splendors of the Surrey countryside. But the war makes itself heard in lines 11 and 12 where Macaulay makes use of the fact that when the wind was right, people on the Sussex coast could hear the pounding of the guns on the western front. The speaker and her friends have their idyllic picnic interrupted by the sounds of battle Um, but they maintain a calm detachment and resignation. We drowsily heard, and someone said, they sound clear today. These lines remind us that by July 1917, the war had almost become a way of life. It became familiar and normal to hear the guns crashing overseas. Now this isn't the heartless indifference that some saw as characteristic of the civilian population, however. In the second stanza, Second section of the poem, the speaker explains that once they were overwhelmed by pity, rage, and pain, but now remote the anguish seems. The stanza break introduced by a comma, rather than a full stop, suggests the now familiar matter-of-fact transition from past to present, dreams within dreams, becoming a surreal, a surreality instead of reality. The picnickers are all too well aware of Flanders mud and the pain of Picardy, but have pushed these things from their consciousness, protecting their psyches by guarding walls. The parentheses around lines 34 to 36 emphasize that the guarding walls are internal, keeping savage reality at bay. And in the final section, the speaker even taunts the guns of France, telling them to be still because they crash in vain and she brings the poem full circle when she says, we'll lie very quiet on hurt hill and sleep once more again. But the reader is left with the sense that this detachment is fragile, for the poem ends on an indefinite note. Oh, we'll lie quite still, nor listen nor look, while the earth bounds reel and shake, lest battered too long our walls and we should break, should break. Echoing Tennyson's break, 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 Macaulay ties her work to an established literary tradition while demonstrating the inadequacy of that tradition to portray current events. The ellipses which end the poem reinforce the precariousness of its protagonist's defenses. The walls could come crashing down at any moment. Women do not dwell on the war, not because they do not care to or find it trivial, but because they cannot. They will go mad if they spend too much time thinking about its reality, thinking about what the pounding of the guns actually means in terms of casualties. And in many ways, this poem is about the words we dare not say, for the fear of their implications and their ability to trigger overwhelming grief. Carola Oman, an Oxford girl, <laughs> um, in her poem, Um, Is Her poem, Unloading Ambulance Train, indicates where troop, trip, troop, train, and ship, say that many times when you're tired, Um, (laughs) the agents of departure served as potent symbols for women war poets. The movement of recruits, soldiers on leave, or wounded in transit provide contrast in a war that was marked by stalemate. Carola Oman's collection, The Men in Road and Other Poems of 1919 draws together poems published earlier in various periodicals from the Oxford Magazine to the Westminster Gazette. Um, And she served in France as a VAD, so this is coming out of her experience as a serving uh, nurse. Um, Unloading Ambulance Train, therefore, written in September 1918, the poem genders the train as feminine as she and the title summarizes the basic activity of the poem unloading ambulance train but the rhythm of the lines and the resonance of her imagery sorry <laughs> that create the atmosphere um, the form is more akin to that of images poetry with its traditional traditionally than then traditionally structured verse into the siding very wearily she comes again singing her endless song so drearily the midnight wind winds sink down to drift the rain, so she comes home once more. The repetition of the sibilant or hissing S and its alliteration in the third line express a lulling quality, while the harsh D sounds that predominate in the fourth line provide contract, contrast and emphasize the heaviness and the weariness of the task. This is further enhanced by phrases comes again, and once more, which reinforce the fact that this ambulance train has done many trips to and from the battlefield because there are so many casualties to be transported. The idea of singing is central to the poem. Omen links her anthem to a past heroic tradition. Is it an ancient shanty, one from some classic shore? The speaker asks. Reminiscent of Homer's Odyssey, and the songs of the sirens, it can also have reminded the contemporary reader of Kipling's The Last Shanty of 1892, in which loud sang the souls of the jolly, jolly mariners. In the present, however, such a shanty is transferred to other, less jubilant men. That is, the stretcher-bearers stand two on either hand. They bend and lift and raise where the doors open wide with yellow light ablaze, into the dark outside, each stretcher passes. Here, as if each on his bire, with sorrow they were bringing, is peace and a low singing. And so the rhythm of the lines emphasizes the underlying movement while the images create this vivid scene. And of course, the sea shanty, as I said, links it to other heroic journeys of old, emphasizing The rhythm of the movement, the loading, the unloading of the stretchers, singing often used to facilitate this arduous task. The internal rhyme all around the old sound reinforces the repetitive circularity. The task never stops, the wounded never stop arriving, and the ambulance must go back back to the front for yet another cargo. The ellipses at the end of the stanza adds a dreamy quality to the images of far off some classic shore. But Omen returns the reader to the present with the final isolated and repeated line, so she comes home once more. The deathly connotation of each stretcher passing from light into darkness is further enhanced by the parenthetical lines that refer to sorrow and a buyer, and we have an echo of Lycidas who would not sing for Lycidas? He knew himself to sing and built the lofty rhyme. He must not float upon his watery byre, unwept and welter to the parching wind without the mead of some melodious tear. It's probably beer, isn't it? Omen's poem is indeed a kind of elegy for the nameless wounded of this ambulance train as the dreadful harvest of the war goes on. May Cannon. And I've given you her poem Rouen. Again, a long poem which needs to be read and sort of reread and thought about. But to point out a few of um, some of its more um, important points, I think. Um, Cannon also served as a du during the war, um, working for a time alongside Carol Oman, the daughter of Charles Cannon, Secretary of Oxford University Press, another Oxford girl, correct? May was engaged to um, Bevel Quiller Couch, the son of Sir Arthur, um, who—that that is Q of the Oxford Book of English Verse, who died in the flu epidemic in 1918. Like other women I've just looked at, Cannon was also haunted by her memories. Her poem Rouen is the most anthologized First World War poem by a woman. She records the incidentals of her experience, soldiers arriving and leaving, recruits being trained, sergeants giving orders, the wounded being nursed. The busy town of Rouen was the gateway to the war for thousands. For the speaker, it is the war. The poem's 13 stanzas can be divided into three movements. The first stanzas, one to nine, constitute one day. Stanzas one and two highlight the morning, stanzas three and four of the afternoon, and stanzas five through nine chronicle evening through midnight. The second movement represents another day, but it is compressed into three stanzas, 10, 11, and 12, and the third and final movement is is marked by stanza 13. The poem begins in a romantic and high-minded manner, but the fourth line introduces the concrete particulars of her experience. Early morning over Rouen, hopeful, high, courageous morning, and the laughter of adventure, and the steepness of the stair, and the dawn across the river, and the wind across the bridges, and the empty littered station, and the tired people there. The, tar- the terms hopeful, high, courageous not only describe the dawn, but also by extension all those who went to war, or who supported it by other means, like cannon. These notions are not ironic for Rouen does not lead to disillusion. The stents of adventure remains throughout. The cataloging of her experiences help to ground the poem, giving it a substance and an immediacy. The reek of steam and coffee, the little piles of woodbines, the sticky soda bottles, the voices of the Indians, the rifles piled together. Cannon occasionally lapses into exotic, exalted cliche, all the youth and pride of England, line 18, or the agony and the splendor when they stood to save the king, line 28. But the confident anapests (coughs) admit no questioning of the values expressed, with one partial exception. The glory of the labor is contrasted with its opposite, um, all inglorious labor, in line 35. This does not deny the glory so much as expose the work for what it is, grueling and unremarkable. Such progression of perception is also a metaphor for the ways in which those on active service move from innocence to experience, from high and hopeful to weary and full of lonely desolation. Cannon continually employs contrasts and opposites. She talks about gay, heartbreaking mirth, agony and splendor, sets the cool white bedded aid post against the long sun blistered coaches and contrasts the truck train train full of wounded with the empty yards. Even the stars are mocking in a reversal of the accepted positive ideas about stars. The magi were guided by one, Beatrice was born under a dancing star, and John Macefield in Sea Fever asked only for a tall ship and a star to sail her by. The Great War was an oxymoron, a war of oxymorons, and the speaker does not try to reconcile them. There is so much more she wishes to communicate, but she does so within the ordered form of verse and the containment of day to night structure. The repetition, moreover, of the insistent questions, can you recall, can you forget, can I forget, accelerates the tempo of accumulating memories. The poem's second movement, the stanzas um, 10 to 12, focus primarily on the speaker and her colleague, the you of the poem, who appear to be going off duty. The frenetic activity of the first stage is, un- um, is replaced by an unhurried stroll towards restful oblivion. The evening features a headed- heterogeneous mix of images eerie, wistful, and delicate tall black ships contracted with the white wine in the glasses, the long line of street lamps. These three stanzas slowly change the tone of the poem as it works its way towards completion with the 13th stanza and the final coda. The poem began early morning over Rouen but ends in a very different place with the speaker no longer on active service. The office in stanza 13 is not a military but a civilian one. When the world slips slow to darkness, when the office fire burns lower, my heart goes out out to Rouen, Rouen all the way. When other men remember, I remember our adventure and the trains that go from Rouen at the ending of the day. The repetition of the word Rouen is like a mantra, making an act of remembrance. Um, Finally, Margaret Posgate Cole, daughter of a Cambridge professor, the other place. Okay. Uh, Cole was educated at Rodine and Girton and in collaboration with her husband, the Fabian socialist G.D.H. Cole. She wrote a number of books on politics and economics, but she is perhaps better remembered now for her detective novels. However, she wrote quite a few poems during the war, and I just want to highlight um, one. Um, well, first of all, I've given you two there, premature, which is quoted quite a lot. Um, but I'll return to that um, perhaps later. But it's the veteran that I want to look at in a little bit of detail. Um, her poem, The Veteran, deals with the theme of youth, grown prematurely old, and depicts the meeting of young soldiers with a veteran blinded at the front. We came upon him sitting in the sun. And some of these will evoke Utility by Owen and Sassoon, certainly the veteran can feel the warmth but cannot see what it reveals. The setting off of of um, setting off of and left with a comma from the first phrase and a full stop from the last in line two highlights not only his isolation but also the sense that he has outrun his usefulness in battle. He is left isolated. And abandoned. Similarly, the enjambment of the second and third lines contrasts with the movement of these young, contrasts the movement of these young men with the inactivity of the blinded veteran. The togetherness of these men and their conviviality is in stark contrast to the solitude of the one from whom they seek advice. The recruits are shown to have no idea what they are about to face, and the veteran pities them and all the nightmares of each empty head blew into the air, then hearing us beside, poor chaps, how'd they know what it's like, he said. The veteran sounds more like an old soldier, but the, but the final stanza delivers a shock akin to the satirical endings we, we hear in Siegfried Sassoon. And you're how old? 19, 3rd of May. So I want to kind of wind some of this up with some general conclusions. Elizabeth Marshland reminds us that all literary works are a product of their age, if only in the sense that the language and literary conventions they employ are engaged at the specific moment of development, a moment that, in turn, given a degree of permanence by the work in question. She goes on to argue that nowhere before 1914 does one find such a large and international body of poetry so firmly implanted in a specific historical context as that which the Great War inspired. Whether wounded in body and or traumatized in mind, the men who survived the fighting and came home were very different from the spirit, from those in spirit from when they marched away As Irene Rathbone remarked in her novel, We That Were Young, there were men whom the war made, there were a far greater number whom it ruined. With very few exceptions, women who returned from active service bore no physical, outward signs of injury or trauma. Yet there, as we would now call it, and this is uh, something Carol and I talk about in our book in the use of terminology of post-traumatic stress, as we would now term it, went largely unrecognized. They came back to a world in which a duty of care towards returned soldiers was expected of them. As Dominic Hibberts and John Onion say, women poets wrote some of their best work in the years immediately after the armistice, reflecting on their own and their men's states of mind and on the losses and silence that could never be made good. Vera Brittain's lament of the demobilized is one such poetic rendering. And I've given you that on the handout. Um, it's number 237 listed. Um, Four years, some say consolingly. Oh well, what's that? You're young, and then it must have been a very fine experience for you. And they forget, how others stayed behind and just got on. Got on the better since we were away. We came home and found they had achieved And men revered their names, but never mentioned ours. And no one talked heroics now. And we must go back and start again once more. You threw four years into the melting pot. Did you indeed? These others cry. Oh, well, the more fool you. And we're beginning to agree with them. In Women Demobilized, which is also follows on from Cannon, um, from Vera Brittain's poem. May Cannon asserts that now in our hearts abides always our war. Now we must go back to the world again, full of gray ghosts and voices of men dying, and in the rain the sounding of last posts and lovers crying. Back to the old, back to the empty world. But now put by the bugles and the drums and the worn, spur, worn spurs and the great swords they carried. Now we are made most lonely proudly theirs the men we married under the dome of the long roll of the drums now are the fallen happy and sleep sound now in the end to us is come the pain those who return will find the love they spend but we are praying of our loves praying love of our lovers fallen who sleep sound now in our hearts abides always our war. Time brings to us no day for our forgetting. Never for us is war folded away, dawn or sunsetting. Now in our hearts abides always our war. Vera Brittain also said, "How fortunate we were who still had hope." I did not then realize. I could not know. I could not know how soon the time would come when we should have had no more hope, and yet be un- unable to die. Thus, for many women, the celebrations that accompanied the end of the war rang hollow, as canon in, the, in um, the poem The Armistice and Office in Paris declared, peace cannot give back your dead. When in the vision dies, the realization that the continued grief that this is your war, from which I take the title of the talk, is tempered by the poignant if if ultimately forlorn lines. Though he comes no more at night, he will kneel by your side for comfort to dream with you. In poetry, therefore, the voice of the survivor is often female and the lonely mourner feminine.